Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known stories behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your deep-sea divers of details, your unsinkable Molly Browns of minutia, your French girls of facts, hitting you with Titanic bass trivia like a sweaty hand on a fogged-up window (laughs) of a sweaty vintage automobile. My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today, we are doing what is quite possibly my favorite episode we've ever done, even more than my beloved Beatles two-parter. I've been writing it for the last six weeks, but in reality, I've been researching it for the last quarter century or longer. Yes, I'm talking about James Cameron's Titanic, which recently turned 25 years old, hard to believe. It came out on December 19th, 1997, just a few days before my 10th birthday, which made the season all the more special for me. This is a movie that defies hyperbole, and frankly, any attempt at an introduction feels superfluous because it's Titanic. The popularity (laughs) of the movie speaks for itself. It's arguably the most transcendent, inescapable, and impressive cinematic experience of the second half of the 20th century. This episode, I'm pleased to announce, is a TMI first. It's our first three-parter. I was trying to make it a two-parter in honor of the original VHS release in the 90s, but there was just too much stuff. Honestly, I think the double VHS set played a role in the film's success because it could be two separate movies depending on your mood. If you watch the first tape, it was a fish-out-of-water rom-com ending in car sex. And the second tape, (laughs) if you started there, it was an action-adventure popcorn flick. And this is just one of the many insightful theories that I'll share about Titanic throughout this episode. Heigl, we've talked a bit before this, and I'm very aware that this movie doesn't mean the same to you that it does to me. But what are your thoughts on Titanic? It's a big boat. (laughs) (laughs) From the makers of Large Plane comes Large Boat. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what do you say about Titanic, man? It's like it was the biggest movie of all time until another James Cameron movie became the biggest movie of all time. I mean, I have a huge soft spot for James Cameron because he made one of my favorite movies of all time, Terminator 2 colon judgment day oh that's Uh, right and aliens and aliens yeah he's so funny man because he's such a i think all of the extra cameron regular activities tend to 
dwarf him as being just like an actual auteur, but he is responsible for some of the greatest movies of all time. And uh, yeah, I, I remember this movie primarily as like a fourth grader who was really into Star Wars and was just really oh. upset that it was going to beat Star Wars as the highest grossing <laughs> movie of all time. <laughs> But I, that was and, how I felt about Lord of the Rings, actually. And I was way too old to be angry about stuff like that when Lord of the Rings... I was in high school when Lord of the Rings beat Titanic for whatever record it beat. Just and, clenching yeah. your fists. Yeah. <laughs> like, ooh, Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's I don't really understand how it did that. I mean, obviously, it's got all these antecedents and, like, Poseidon Adventure and all this stuff mm. that you love. And But it's... Romeo it's, and Juliet, too. I mean... Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I don't know. Who would have predicted this? Like... Yeah, it, no. It's coming through the, like, mid-90s, like, maximalist action and transportation movies, but also, like... <laughs> Are you, you likening know. this to, like, speed? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sp- speed. Speed 2 Cruise Control... The four action plane movies we talked about when we did Air Force One, you know, we had Dante's Peak. We had, uh, there was another volcano disaster one. So it does seem like there was like a groundswell towards like big disaster movies, I guess Mm. coming off of Jurassic Park as well. Like that's true, which I think was the highest grossing movie of all time for. Yeah. All that like Spielbergian, you know, golly whiz G Willikers like spectacle filmmaking. But like. Who would have picked that it was Titanic? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, what well, it could have just—it feels like it could have just as easily been like Hindenburg, <laughs> James Cameron's Hindenburg, or like some other big disaster, like the the mola- molasses, like um, like one of those molasses, oh, the Great Molasses Floods, <laughs> yeah, like which is what? a Boston thing, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it just—it's just funny to me that it ended up being Titanic. You know. I I must just have a blind spot towards it in like where it occupied in like U.S. history as far as like a big nation gripping tragedy, you know? Well, it hits a lot of stuff. I mean, the juxtaposition between rich and the poor, gender Mm. roles with the women and children first and the men kind of stoically staying back and this sort of nobility. (laughs) This nobility of the Gilded Age and, you know, the magnificence of that juxtaposed with the arrogance and, you know, the the folly. You know, you think of that. It's that Jim Morrison line, the future's uncertain and the end is always near. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I just compared Jim Morrison to the Titanic. <laughs> just a bumpy start for this episode. But I do think that the spectacle played a huge role in this, too. I mean, it was the most expensive movie ever made at that point, $200 million. Uh, that's about a million dollars per minute of screen time, which is just ridiculous. I mean, the cost to construct the Titanic back in 1910 to 1912 was about $7.5 million, which, adjusted for inflation, is about 120 to $150 million in 1997 dollars. Which means that the movie Titanic costs more to make than the actual Titanic, <laughs> which I enjoy. And so much more in actual human suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll talk a lot about. Uh, All it took was one James Cameron. Yes. Uh, but I mean, this movie, it made a huge impact on me as it did on so many. I'd say that the Titanic and the Beatles are my twin obsessions, which mm-hmm. is strange because I've noticed that there's a great deal of overlap between classic rock super fans and Titanic enthusiasts. Uh, Go on. I know. I, I don't understand why, but just anecdotally on Twitter, I've seen a lot of overlap between the two. Maybe it's the fact that Liverpool is the home base for both the Beatles and it was the Titanic's home port. So mm. I don't know. I'd love some some study on this, but. But, uh, it's like, unlike, uh, jazz fans and serial killer aficionados. 
I didn't know that. I need jazz and like heavy metal. No, I'm making that up. Oh, okay. That's just you. <laughs> just, just, just you. Just me. Oh, new year. Same high goal. <laughs> but you know, unlike a lot of my millennial peers, I was actually obsessed with the Titanic long before the movie came out. And I say this not for any kind of like, you know, I was into this before it was cool cred because it was never cool. Uh, <laughs> but I just want to give you an idea of how excited I was for this movie. And I heard news reports about the production of Titanic for years prior to the release. And so this was just a huge one for me. I got hooked when I rented the National Geographic special about the discovery of the Titanic from my local library when I was in kindergarten. No idea what compelled me to watch it, but uh, soon I knew it so well that I was able to write the narration from memory, and I would really freak out my teachers who thought I was actually capable of coming up with lines like, her name was a synonym for tragedy on my own at age six. <laughs> um, but I actually freaked out my teachers quite a bit with my Titanic interest, because somewhere at my house there are stacks of like crayon drawings that I did of the ship going down with like people jumping off the back. Um, like in my child hand it's kind of disturbing uh, I dressed up as Captain Smith for Halloween when I was in first grade which again I have was, seen that photo yes it was before the movie came out so no one had any idea who the hell I was so I actually felt really validated and happy when the Titanic movie came out because suddenly my obsession was cool and I could share what I thought was so interesting about it much like I'm doing today. In addition to the production notes about this movie, we'll compare and contrast how elements of the film stacked up with the reality of that night back in April of 1912. Well, this is certainly going to be the longest episode we've done. So in the interest of preserving time, I'm not even going to give any teasers. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to present episode one of our three-part epic detailing everything you didn't know about the making of James Cameron's Titanic. Take her to see, Mr. Murdoch. <laughs> Let's stretch her legs. <laughs> Do you ever watch Riff Tracks? Uh, oh, with the Mystery Science Theater 3000 yeah, people? They're kind of hit or miss, but the Titanic yeah. one is so good because they just do that big slow pan up to the captain and he just like, one of them just goes, I'm going to sink this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> Well, the story of the Titanic film really begins with the discovery of the wreck of the Titanic in 1985, after it was missing for 73 years. It was discovered by an expedition led by Dr. Robert Ballard of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And the interesting thing here is that he wasn't actually supposed to be looking for the Titanic in the first place. <laughs> it came out a few years ago that Ballard and his team were actually on a top-secret mission for the U.S. Navy. Back in the 60s, the Navy lost two nuclear subs under mysterious circumstances, the Thresher and the Scorpion, and Dr. Ballard was sent to try and locate the wrecks to try and determine if the Soviets had gotten there first, which would have been bad because it was the Cold War and they would have been able to steal a bunch of our military secrets and all that stuff. So the whole searching for the Titanic thing was just a cover story for what they were doing in the North Atlantic, but Dr. Ballard found the missing subs and completed his mission so quickly that he actually had 12 days left over to search for the Titanic. Oh, what the hell? We're here. Yeah, it's like turning out your couch cushions <laughs> yeah. when you're already cleaning. Like, eh, we'll, just, we'll see what we can turn yeah, up. So what do we got in here? And he actually found the Titanic by using many of the techniques he'd honed while searching for these missing subs. There is the National Geographic documentary that I mentioned earlier about the discovery of the Titanic from 1987 that features footage of the very moment Dr. Ballard and his team locate the wreck, and Ballard lets out a triumphant, well, I'll be 
damn, which is hilarious. Uh, and you remember, this was a recurring line in the Titanic film when Bill Paxton's Sea Explorer character, Brock Lovett, cracks the safe and finds the drawing of Rose with the heart of the ocean diamond. Uh, and that's what he says, I'll be damn. And then old Rose sees the drawing on TV, says the same thing, I'll be damn. And that's when she gets in contact with uh, Bill Paxton's character, Brock, and kicks off the plot of the movie. So James Cameron watched this 1987 National Geographic documentary, and it made a big impression on him, as it did me. He made a note at the time, do story with bookend of present-day wreckage scene, intercut with memory of a survivor, needs a mystery or driving plot element. Thus, the seeds of the Titanic movie were sown. Cameron was extremely interested in undersea exploration, and he actually wrote his 1989 film The Abyss after seeing another National Geographic documentary about remote-operated vehicles similar to the ones that Dr. Ballard used to find the Titanic. So his interest in all this stuff was already well-established, but the thing that was so tantalizing about the Titanic plotline was that it was real. In 1992, there was an IMAX documentary film called Titanica that featured fantastic, high-quality, for the time, footage of the wreck. I remember going to see this in Boston at the Museum of Science as a boy. For James Cameron, this IMAX documentary sparked the idea that he could go down two and a half miles in the North Atlantic and film the wreck for real and incorporate that footage into his own movie, which had never been done for a feature film, essentially using the actual wreck as a set. And the challenge really appealed to him. So in a sense, the movie Titanic was a giant excuse for James Cameron to visit the wreck of the Titanic on Hollywood's dime, which I appreciate. And he was very <laughs> open about this. He later said, I sort of joke about this, but it's more true than not that I made the movie because I wanted to do an expedition to the wreck of the Titanic. God love him. And that is when we segue into the James Cameron corner of the Titanic. James Cameron deck? The Cameron deck? <laughs> the Cameron deck. Um, yeah, Cameron's so fascinating to me, man. He is one of the most autocratic dictatorial directors of all time he has as many horror stories about his directing style as he does people who are like fanatically dedicated to him you know he shoots he writes produces edits he helps do set makeup and uh you know stunts there's multiple anecdotes from titanic and other films where he's just like roams around the set and will just like go in on someone and adjust their makeup actor danny nucci who played fabrizio in titanic said that cameron would get in there and just like even adjust the shape of blood spatter or a scar according to his vision um where they were chopping up uh pieces of ice for the iceberg scene cameron got in there with a pickaxe to sculpt the ice according to how he wanted it um, just, Stephen, just the ice on the deck, like the little pieces that you like couldn't even really see. We're not even talking about the iceberg itself. We're talking about just stuff on the deck. There's something really pathological there, but God love him. He gets results. Yeah. Um, Stephen Lang, who's the most notably the villain in Avatar, but it's been a couple Cameron things. He says, uh, he told The Ringer recently, the two onset jobs that Jim Cameron respects the most are acting and catering because those are the two jobs he knows he can't do better than everybody else. <laughs> there was a 2009 New Yorker profile by Dana Goodyear called James Cameron, Man of Extremes. Uh, and there's some great anecdotes in it, which we will share now. At 14, James Cameron saw Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and at that moment, he knew he wanted to make films, which bodes well for, for someone being an extremely exacting, research-obsessed 
actor abusing auteur. <laughs> he started experimenting with his own models and sort of, you know, DIY kid grade special effects. Um, but Kubrick was kind of the top of the mountain for him as far as that stuff goes on. Uh, he called him his hero after he made the one of his sort of rare misfires, True Lies, the spy spoof uh, with Arnold, which is, do you have the anecdote in here about how he yelled at Arnold in Washington, D.C.? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't have it in here. No, no. There was like a downtime during the set. It was right? like and 20 Arnold... minutes or something. They were yeah. going to change it. They were going to change a, a light bulb or something. And, and they were in a car, Tom Arnold and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, because he loves being American, yeah. um, <laughs> was like, I'll just take you guys on a brief loop of this part of D.C. and point out some of the stuff. And he got back and James Cameron like smashed, like he p- punches the hood of the car. He was like, where the hell were you? And Tom Arnold was like, this thing that was supposed to take 20, 25 minutes took 15 because it was James and James blew up at Arnold. And he was like, are you going to let him talk to you like that? And Arnold Schwarzenegger was like, yes. Yeah. Arnold was like, I screwed up. Yeah. (laughs) He took it very well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And uh, he, after he finished that movie, he called up Kubrick, who is just, you know, at that point kind of into his Howard Hughes era of just living in this baronial estate. Finishing Eyes Wide Shut. I guess, yeah. <laughs> uh, and according to that New Yorker profile, they spent a day in the basement of Kubrick's house in the English countryside watching True Lies at Kubrick's flatbed editing station. Cameron went over the shots. Well, no, I think the point is that Cameron invited himself over to his hero's <laughs> house. I think it's, the, it's really the main takeaway here. And it proceeded to show him his own movie. <laughs> here's how I made Arnold shoot this missile out of the jet (laughs) through an office building into a helicopter. Um, Then in the mid nineties, Oh boy, James Cameron and women, dude, what we talk about when we talk about James Cameron and women Uh, in the nineties, he was in a long-term relationship with his Terminator star, Linda Hamilton. She wanted to get married, but Cameron dragged his feet. According to Linda, he used to say, anybody can be a husband or a father. There are only five people in the world who can do what I do, and I'm going for that. And again, this is funny. It's it's. Uh, I just found this interview where he basically talks about how the second Avatar is is just like he's like, well, now this is my family movie because I have five kids now, so this is my like movie about what it means to be a dad. Um, and I made the comparison to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which Steven Spielberg famously said he would never have shot the same way if he had been a dad. The movie would have been different. He was like, I never would have had a dad abandoning his kids. Um, yeah, it's just funny. You see James Cameron's progression from like, I do not want children. They are the enemy of art (laughs) to like, now I am a dad. And that is the genesis of all art because it's all about me. James Cameron apparently has a weird conflicted relationship with his dad. I just found this possibly apocryphal story that when aliens blew up and became this huge film and really anointed him as this enormous director, someone asked his dad if he was like proud of him or what he thought of his son's success. And his dad said, he's had enough praise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Linda Hamilton got pregnant and moved out when Cameron's first child, uh, Josephine, was nine months old. The pair ultimately split up following the release of Titanic. And James Cameron then got together with actress Susie Amis, who appeared in Titanic as Old Rose's granddaughter, which we will cover later. And example three, before he started production on the movie The Abyss, one of the most ambitious movies ever, considering it was filmed mostly underwater, uh, film Ed Harris still has taken a vow of silence over, uh, will not discuss the making of. Does that traumatic for him? I think someone almost died. There's like, if you kind uh, of read between the lines on this, they talk about like, I think Ed Harris and some other people talk about like driving home from the shooting and just like spontaneous, like having like post-traumatic stress, just like bursting into tears in their car. 
I mean, that sounds like every day on the Titanic set. As we'll <laughs> I mean, get to. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, with that as the preamble, when he wanted to make the abyss, Cameron went to the president of Fox and said, "I want you to know one thing." Once we embark on this adventure and I start to make this movie, the only way you'll be able to stop me is to kill me. And the Fox president later said, you looked into those eyes and you knew he meant it. <laughs> he just he talks like a superhero, like a cartoon, like a comic book character. I think that's, a, in fact, like a line in one of the Marvel movies about Captain America. So, like, it's like an action hero cliche to say, like, you're going to have to kill me. Oh, it's from cool Luke. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sh- that's what we're talking about. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, so Terminator was his first real big success. I believe he was living out of his truck when he made that movie. He had just done, I think right prior to that was Piranha, Piranha 2, because he was uh, he was Corman affiliated, right? Roger Corman affiliated. Ultra yeah, he's making like cheapy, yeah. Um, and then so he got the Alien sequel, Aliens. He had a reputation as an action director whose work had... Slightly more depth than the average. Uh, and he made so much damn money, um, yeah. which is really the James Cameron story. High risk, high reward, baby. Terminator 2, the first film to cost over $100 million. Also the highest grossing movie that year. Titanic, the first film to exceed $200 million in budget. And, you know, God love him. He sets an ambitious schedule for himself and then expects everyone else to follow it. Start to finish Terminator 2 from writing the script to the premiere, 13 months. That's insane. Yeah, dude, you take 13 months to write a script. You take 13 months to edit a film. You take 13 months to, like, do sound mixing. (laughs) I mean, good Lord. He shot that movie six days a week using the seventh day to edit. And on the seventh day, (laughs) Cameron edited. Crew members made shirts that read, you can't scare me. I work for James Cameron. So in the spring of 1995, James Cameron went to 20th Century Fox to pitch a movie that he described as Romeo and Juliet on a boat. (laughs) It's economical. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's the elevator pitch. Uh, There was no script at the time. Cameron, keep that in mind. Studio brass were initially understandably lukewarm on the idea. Uh, According to Cameron, he said they were like, okay, a three-hour romantic epic. Is there a little bit of Terminator in that? Any Harrier jets? Shootouts, car chases. I said, no, 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 no. It's not like that. Uh, Titanic was the first film he had made that did not include or mention nuclear weapons, (laughs) which is such a funny little statistic to me. (laughs) Love is the real nuke. The real (laughs) nuclear weapon was the friends we made along the way. Um... He asked them for $125 million to make the movie, more than Terminator 2, which we just mentioned was the most expensive film ever made at that time. They freaked and uh, gave him the green light on it with the caveat that one should be done for $110 mil and two be ready to release in July of 1997. This is where we punch in Ron Howard as the narrator saying he would fail on both of those. Studio really wanted to keep Cameron happy because of, again, the money. Apparently, they they wanted him to do Spider-Man and Planet of the Apes, both of which went to sort of his peers in big-budget fantasy sci-fi land, uh, Sam Raimi for Spider-Man and Tim Burton for Planet of the Apes. Fox also gave him $2 million to fund his his little deep-sea work vacation, um, which is all he really wanted. Uh, (laughs) It's like that uh, quote in the office from Creed where he's like, uh, well, if I can't go scuba diving, what's this whole thing been for? (laughs) Um, 
His justification was, sure, it's more expensive than just using the models, but it'll be great publicity for the movie. So, Titanic production metaphorically and literally set sail under the decoy title Planet Ice, joining the pantheon of great production shooting title decoy names, such as Group Hug for the Avengers and the first Star Trek reboot, Corporate Headquarters. Yeah, studios give their high-profile productions fake names to discourage news leaks, basically. It's important to remember that Fox signed off on this hundred-plus million-dollar project with no script at all, just a rough storyline. And this decision raised more than a few eyebrows at Fox. It was obvious from the start that Cameron wanted to make a capital E epic. He talked a lot during the production about wanting to make a movie on the scale of Dr. Zhivago, the 1965 historical romance drama. For Cameron, it was easy to create a spectacle, but he needed to craft the human story to create what he called an emotional doorway for people to appreciate the true tragedy of what happened on Titanic. In addition to disaster on a grand scale, he needed intimate moments. He later said, The fate of our Titanic movie lay in our ability to steer her properly past the icebergs of bombast and create a living heart for the film out of gestures, glances, tentative smiles, halting awkward sentences, and the vocabulary of nascent love. That is, I believe, part of the intro to the paperback coffee table book, James Cameron's Titanic, which everyone I knew had as a kid. Um, And he wrote extensively in this intro about humanizing the tragedy of the Titanic. He said, I wanted an audience to cry for Titanic, which means to cry for the people on the ship, which really means to cry for any lost soul in their hour of untimely death. But the deaths of 1,500 innocents is too abstract for our hearts to grasp, although the mind can form the number easily. To fully experience the tragedy of Titanic, to be able to comprehend it in human terms, it seemed necessary to create an emotional lightning rod for the audience by giving them two main characters they care about and then taking those characters into hell. (laughs) The story of Titanic and her fate seemed a magnificent canvas on which to paint a love story, a canvas offering the full spectral range of human emotion, The greatest loves can only be measured against the greatest of adversities and the greatest sacrifices thus defined. Titanic, in all her terrible majesty, produces this as does no other historical event. So like you were talking about at the top of the episode, that's kind of why the Titanic story has resonated with people for 110 years now. But not with you. I just can't believe he writes like that. No, I just can't believe like that is, that's uh, purple prose, as we call it in the industry. So with this, uh, you know, crafting the human element as his M.O., James Cameron conjured this fairy tale like story of two people who fall in love across class boundaries, Rose DeWitt Bucater and Jack Dawson. And James Cameron has been pretty open about the fact that Jack is an idealized version of himself. Like Cameron, he comes from a town called Chippewa. Cameron was from Chippewa, Ontario, and Jack Dawson was of the Chippewa Falls Dawsons in Wisconsin. <laughs> And like Jack, James Cameron loved to sketch. Cameron told Rolling Stone in 1998, There's a lot of me in Jack, definitely. Before clarifying, actually, I shouldn't say that. Jack is the guy I wished I could have been. I wished I had his courage and openness. And his descriptions of Jack in the screenplay are adorably and somewhat hilariously fawning. As Jack stargazes on a bench before meeting Rose, he's described as thinking, quote, artist thoughts. (laughs) Interior artist thoughts. And his sketchbook isn't any old sketchbook, but, quote, a celebration of the human condition. (laughs) 
I don't know why I'm sniggering. This script made two billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, what are we doing? Yeah, just right. Yeah, idiots sitting in a closet insects, talking about yeah, you know. <laughs> insects with a podcast. Just like <laughs> it's just still so funny. It's so funny. I mean, it gives us all. Let this give us all hope. I'm imagining his original shooting script. It just every time it says Jack, it says parent in brackets. It's just actually me, James Cameron. <laughs> I put your like little hand drawn hearts all around yeah. it, like in a Jack, comma, handsomely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, as Rose begins to fall in love with Jack, she does so because, according to the description in the script, he's quote so open and real, not unlike anyone she's ever known. Like me, James Cameron, <laughs> the way women fall in love with me, handsomely. God love him. <laughs> And I've also seen reports that, in addition to basing it slightly on himself, Jack was based on, or at least named after, the rugged outdoorsy author Jack London, who wrote White Fang and Call of the Wild. The character of Rose also had a somewhat personal connection to James Cameron. She was named after his grandmother and also has some of the personality of his mother. He later said, Rose is afraid of being trapped and not being fulfilled. My mother was an artist, but she was chained to being a mother of five kids, so she didn't really get to be an artist. Yikes, Jim. Uh, The character of Rose was also inspired by a real-life woman by the name of Beatrice Wood, and Cameron was reading her autobiography during the development of the script. She came from a wealthy American family, but she was more interested in avant-garde abstract art, just like Rose. She claimed she never married the men she loved and never loved the men she married, which is a tremendous line. And somewhat mirroring the star-crossed lovers plotline in Titanic, Beatrice Wood fell in love with an Indian scientist when she was younger, only to be separated by cultural circumstance. Beatrice was specifically an influence on the character of Old Rose because they were both these vibrant personalities. And Beatrice was nearly 100 when Titanic was released before she died in 1998. But I think James Cameron went out of his way to meet with her on several occasions, which is nice. Now we got to talk about the dialogue in Titanic, which if the passages we just read to you are any indication, (laughs) it's famously bad. Uh, So bad that it actually inspired a contrarian clickbaity piece on EW called James Cameron's dialogue in Titanic is actually great. Despite this headline, it features this tremendous admission from writer James Hibbard. The mockery of the dialogue is partly due to Titanic lines being pretty on the nose. Like, so on the nose, they punch you in the face. (laughs) He then goes on to quote several reviews of the film that specifically target the dialogue. Slate's David Edelstein wrote, Titanic carries some stinkers that wouldn't make the final draft of a Days of Our Lives script. (laughs) Ouch. Kenneth Turin of the LA Times had this to say, what really brings on the tears is writer-director Cameron's insistence that writing this kind of movie is within his abilities. It isn't even close. (laughs) And Salon's Stephanie Zacharek was even more blunt, criticizing, quote, loads of blockhead dialogue. But James Hibbert defends the dialogue in his piece on EW, citing its efficiency. He says, quote, within seconds of meeting Jack Dawson, Rose DeWitt Bucator, and Cal Hockley, who's Rose's jerky fiance, you know precisely who these characters are and what they want. Vagabond Jack immediately reveals his poverty, lack of education, and gung-ho spirit. You know, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose, which I've never been able to determine whether or not that's a conscious rip on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Um, At another point in the movie, Jack says, I'm just a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. So, I don't know, maybe James Cameron is just a big Bob Dylan fan, because that's 
two Dylan rips and one script, which Mm -hmm. is kind of the limit. Um, Back to (laughs) James Hibbard's piece. Rose quickly shows her desperation and initial tone-deaf privilege in a voiceover. It was the ship of dreams to everyone else, but to me it was a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. (laughs) I don't think that was necessarily meant to show that she was tone-deaf. I think that was just a line in 1997. Yeah, they probably threw uh, slavery references a little more cavalierly. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite James Cameron dialogue of all time is in Terminator 2. It's uh, when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger strokes little Eddie, Eddie Furlong's face and says, I know now why you cry. Though it's something I can never do. This <laughs> <laughs> sounds like such a threat I delivered in that, in that Austrian stentorian baritone <laughs> you know uh bob dylan apparently repaid the favor there's the 14 minute song on uh tempest that came out in 2015 which is uh has uh, a bunch of references to the titanic do you know this oh, you remember this oh i it sort of sounds familiar it even includes the line leo took his sketchbook he was often so inclined he closed his eyes and painted the scenery in his mind I didn't know it actually was about the movie. I thought it was about the actual historical incident. Wow. I believe it is, but it, uh, you know, touches on on Leo as it does. So As does most things. <laughs> oh boy, where do we get to Leo? Yes. But what Titanic lacked in subtle dialogue, it made up for an insane obsessive research, which I deeply respect. This is where <laughs> I feel very close to James Cameron. He spent six months poring over every detail of the ship, which doesn't seem like a lot to me, but I'll give it to him. He later (laughs) said in the intro to the Titanic production book, quote, I wanted to be able to say to an audience without the slightest pang of guilt, this is real. This is what happened. Exactly like this. If you went back in a time machine and stood on the deck, this is what you would have seen. Swoon. (laughs) I love that. Uh, There are some historical points, however, that were fudged or excised for dramatic purposes, as we'll get into later. For example, there's an entire day of the ship's voyage that's just missing in the movie and wasn't included, which, I don't know, makes sense. You know, you can't have have it all. Although, (laughs) I don't know, considering that they fell that deeply in love in just two days, maybe they could have used the third day just to make that a little more believable. (laughs) It's like the James Cameron was like, uh, I'm going to obsessively detail every inch of this damn ship and then someone's like oh they fall in love in two days he's like yeah that's that's what how it happens right based on my research <laughs> as he's going through like carpet swaths and like <laughs> yeah as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on rolling stones hugely popular influential and sometimes controversial list I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Overall, though, the accuracy in Titanic is pretty stunning. We'll get to the recreation of the rooms and the props later, but even little moments occurring in the background were true to life. Everything from the hymn that they sing in the scene when Jack gets thrown out of the church service, uh, engineers warming their soup on a steam pipe, that was something they used to do, and passengers getting reprimanded by crew for damaging White Star Line property as the ship was sinking. That really happened. And also the man leading prayers on the stern of the ship just before it went down. These were all effectively true incidents. Uh, One of the most poignant little moments occurred in the scene where Jack sneaks onto the first-class boat deck to see Rose, and he walks past a little boy playing with his toy top. That's a recreation of a famous photo taken of a boy named Douglas Spedden, who was a first-class passenger who made it off the ship only to die three years later in one of the first automobile accidents in the state of Maine. I think he was like nine years old. Uh, This gets to an interesting point about photographs of Titanic. There are actually very few depicting ship life because the Titanic sank on her maiden voyage. The only reason there are any at all is because the Titanic actually made two stops before heading out onto the North Atlantic, where she sank. Cherbourg, France, on the same day she set sail on April 10th, 1912, and then the following day in Ireland. And there were a lucky seven passengers who spent the night on Titanic before disembarking the next day. I think it was also a crew member who jumped ship, which I would love to interview that guy, like what compelled him to leave. Um, Of these seven passengers who left the ship early, it was a priest named Father Francis Brown, who took some of the only photos we have of life on board the Titanic when she was at sea, one of which being this photo of Douglas Spedden playing with his top. And there are also some more photos from a group called the Odell family who put them in their family scrapbook. Um, That was really kind of it. Obviously, there were probably many others on board who took photographs, but it's thought that all these cameras went down with the ship and their film was destroyed by seawater. It's possible that somebody took their small camera off the ship in their, you know, coat and developed the pictures and they're in some family trunk in an attic somewhere in England. uh, But 
and you, you know, will find them. And I will you, find them. Yeah, you as far and James as Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as we know, though, those are really the only two groups of photos that, that showed life on board the ship on the the final voyage. So these photos from Father Brown and the Odells are extremely valuable because, again, they're the only photos we have of the ship on our one and only voyage. Bizarrely. The Priest in Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce is based on Father Francis Brown, this Titanic photographer, because James Hmm. Joyce knew him. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, Father Brown's story is interesting. He actually befriended an American couple on the one night that he was on board the Titanic, and they offered to pay his way to New York and back simply because they liked spending time with him and they didn't want him to get off in Ireland. But when Father Brown sent the telegram to his superior asking permission to go on this journey, the superior sent the telegram back, apparently in all caps, reading, get off that ship. (laughs) How's that for divine intervention? Good Lord. I know, yeah. It's worth noting that the interior of the Titanic is not very well documented. In fact, there's only 39 known photos of her interiors. Most of the pictures in history books that purportedly show the famous accommodations like the Grand Staircase and the lounge and the the smoking room are all photos of her almost identical twin sister ship, the Olympic. And because they were built to be pretty much the same, the public rooms at least, the ship's owners, White Star Line, didn't feel the need to photograph rooms that the public had seen before on the other ship. So instead, they only photographed areas that were different. You know, special first-class parlor suites, the Café Parisienne, which is this fake French sidewalk cafe built off one of the decks, and a redesigned Turkish bath, which is like an early spa. So this makes James Cameron's research all the more impressive, considering he had precious little to go on when it came to researching how the Titanic actually appeared inside. And he also went down to the real Titanic to find out. A for effort. (laughs) Yeah, Cameron took a very hands-on approach to research by going down and visiting the wreck itself for close to a month uh, in the summer of 95. Um, But he was already an old hat at being underwater by this point, having having done the abyss. Um, this footage would, the footage that he shot during this period would serve as part of the bookends of the movie that are set in the present day. Uh, the story treatment for the movie opens with the evocative bit of Cameron-esque doggerel. In the blackness, we hear the lonely ping of a bottom sonar. Then two faint lights appear close together, growing brighter. They each resolve into clusters of lights, which are soon revealed to be two deep submersibles falling towards us. We are somewhere in the ocean deep, looking up at two subs, free-falling like express elevators. Soon they are fireflies, then stars, then gone. <laughs> uh, I'd love to read James Cameron's like book list. Is it like, if it's all like, <laughs> he reads like pulp novels. The Titanic was two and a half miles down, and the pressure from the water exerts 6,000 pounds per square inch. In other words, if there's a crack in your sub at that depth, you are squished instantly which is why the subs have these portholes made of six-inch, seven-inch plexiglass. Um, God, dude, decompression stuff, like, freaks me out so much. It's why oh, I the bends. Have, you know, the bends and, like, uh, all these... There was other... Have you ever seen Deep Star 6? Probably no. not. That's, like, a budget... Uh, I think it's Corman, actually. Uh, it's a budget, um, like, underwater horror movie from around the same time as The Abyss, and there's a character who, is, like, blows up because he tries to go up to the surface too quickly. Uh, we're not supposed to go down there that's not natural (laughs) that is not where we are supposed to be i'm scared of Uh, fish oh yeah well the fish deeply afraid of fish that's lovecraft's whole thing is yeah there's weird fish and that's scary (laughs) i don't don't do fish i grew up on a lake and when i was a little kid my next door neighbors would take dead fish on rakes and fling them at me (laughs) and so i yeah i really i'm mostly afraid of dead fish actually 
I think that's why I like sushi now. I absorb their power. <laughs> one of my uh, one of the drummers in my band used to have tarantulas, and he would throw their shells at me after they molted, pretending that oh. that was the. Ri- oh yeah, I would like. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, I'm okay with spiders though. No. I'm kind of wish it with you on fish though, and drummers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At the time, there were only five submarines on the planet capable of diving to the depths of the Titanic. James Cameron hired two of them, (laughs) the Mir-1 and Mir-2. As the name suggests, they were Russian. What does Mir mean? Isn't it like peace or some like thing that Russians don't believe in? Uh, Like sobriety or (laughs) warmth, brevity. (laughs) It does mean, it means peace and world. Hmm. Uh-uh. <laughs> Sorry to our uh, Russian fans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the majority of the crew on the research vessel, the Keldish, which is the same crew that he used to shoot the Bill Paxton scenes for the movie. Uh, the Russian scientific director and his crew were not exactly thrilled by having their research vessel commandeered to make, uh, you know, decadent Western cinema. But the Soviet Union had just collapsed and money was tight, and so American dollars were useful. James Cameron paid them in Levi's. In Soviet Russia, uh, movie makes you. <laughs> Too easy. Too easy. Hold on, Does people even understand Yakov, the Yakov Shrinov references? They should. <laughs> they better. Yeah. Or else, what's this all for? <laughs> what's it all for? <laughs> There had been a Titanic IMAX movie shot uh, already, but that had been filmed with cameras inside a submarine viewing the wreck through the porthole. Like a sane person. <laughs> James Cameron said, pish on that. <laughs> and he wanted uh, he wanted to be outside of the sub. I want to be outside of it. I want to be in the water. God, what an insane person he is. Again, 6,000 pounds per square inch bearing down on you. I'm shocked when he made the Terminator. He was like, so we're going to build a death robot. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. uh, It's cheaper. It's cheaper. I I crunched the numbers. It's cheaper. I'm going to code a sentient piece of AI (laughs) that will murder the world myself. Um, And that later became Twitter. Uh, Obviously... No cameras existed that could withstand that pressure, so he developed a new one, encased in titanium. Titanium. Unfortunately, for reasons beyond all of us, it only held 12 minutes of film at a time and couldn't be reloaded mid-dive, so they had to rehearse every single move that it was going to be making, like the lunar landing, in order to capture the footage. It was not easy having two subs fly as close to one another as possible in coordination with lighting braces all around a submersed, uh, treacherous metal wreck covered in steel cables in uh, the freezing pitch black of the ocean depths because light stops penetrating at a certain distance with a crew that does not speak much English. Each dive cost between 25 and 40 grand and they had 12 minutes of footage from it. Uh, the Russian pilots knew how to drive their subs, but not necessarily what made a good shot, so they had to practice with miniature cameras on a model of the wreck, obscured with smoke to simulate the ocean depth. Oh, to be a fly on the wall of those rehearsals. It was like a little lipstick camera. Oh, yeah. They were shooting this movie in one of the most extreme environments ever attempted. I mean, it's... I don't know. What was the analog? Shooting in, like, Death Valley in high summer? Oh, I would um, say that's even easier. Yeah, because there's oxygen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and not 6,000 pounds per square inch bearing down on you. 
and light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. James Cameron went on 12 of these dives to the wreck during the production of Titanic, and each one was like a 12 to 16 hour round trip, which means by your calculations, it means he spent more time on the wreck of the Titanic shooting the movie than the actual Titanic passengers did in 1912. (laughs) He spent more time on this wreck than the actual passengers and more money than it cost to actually make the boat. Jesus Christ. The crew space in the subs was seven feet and a sphere, and you were stuck there for more than two hours just making it down to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, As he evocatively wrote in his characteristic prose in the Titanic production boat, after 12 trips into the abyssal depths of the North Atlantic, I can honestly tell you that getting there is not half the fun. Imagine two Russian scientists and one Hollywood filmmaker crammed into a space smaller than your stereotypical clown car, free-falling for hours through two and a half miles of blackness with the weight of the ocean tightening around you. I'm getting a panic attack just reading this. Tightening around the freezing metal cruise sphere. Even worse. There was plenty of time to reflect on the fact that we were completely dependent on the successful functioning of countless technological systems in order to reach and photograph the ultimate symbol of technological failure, Titanic. (laughs) On one of these trips, they all almost died when a heavy underwater current, which they call a bottom storm, mm, not not touching that one, uh, blew them off course, draining their battery. When it came time to return to the surface, they were almost out of power and nearly froze to death. He had another kind of bottom storm when he got off the sub. (laughs) (laughs) It paid off, though, because that's where you get so many of the amazing shots in the beginning of the movie, the wreck coming out of the bottom of the ocean, lit by these incredible rigs to appear even more grand and ghostly. On the last dive, they decided to pilot their remote-operated vehicle inside the wreck. This was basically a camera with thrusters attached to the sub by a leash, hence his nickname of Snoop Dogg. He was meant to just be a prop, but he was actually fully functional and small enough to get inside the wreck where the submarines were too big to go. And that is how they saw rooms that hadn't been seen by human eyes since the ship sank in 1912. That's so cool, right? Like, just like the concept of that is insane. Yeah, it's, it's, the mind fairly reels. No. Uh, It had long been thought that wood-boring mollusks had eaten all of the the pod, wood-boring mollusks. had eaten all of these ornate fittings, but they found hand-carved oak columns and wood paneling, including white paint in the reception area, a.k.a. the room where Cal tries to shoot Jack and Rose as the ship sinks. The doors in the entrance vestibule that old Rose sees in the research festival monitor are real. They made their way into the millionaire suite on B-Deck that had been booked by J.P. Morgan before he canceled his ticket. Inside are the remains of furniture, wall sconces, and the fireplace. The room is recreated for Cal and Rose's sitting room, where the famous draw me like one of your French girls scene occurs. But in the end, James Cameron did not get quite as much usable footage of the wreck as he wanted due to the poor conditions, the aforementioned bottom storm. <laughs> as a result, some of the wreck footage in the movie was filmed on an extremely elaborate 1 to 20 scale model on a sound stage, where some of the wreck interiors were recreated as well. Uh, some people felt that James Cameron misled the public into just how much authentic Titanic footage actually made its way into the movie, but, uh, those people are dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The man took his and many other lives into his hands to get what he did, and you, you people are like, needs more. Uh, his total Titanic dive count was 33, you said? Yeah, he went. He made some documentaries, Ghosts of the Abyss 
And I think he made a few National Geographic ones, like Return to Titanic or something years later. And he's done 33 dives to the Titanic, which is insane. Yeah. That's like a month yeah. on Titanic. There was actually this article that was written in 1998 by Paula Parisi specifically about these dives, and it's called Lunch on the Deck of the Titanic, because apparently James Cameron insisted that during each dive, they park their subs on the Titanic's boat deck and eat lunch. He told her, we'd have some tea and stare out the portholes and think about all the events that had happened here. I'd already written the treatment for the movie, so I already knew who did what to who and what had happened where and what dramas had played out exactly where we were sitting. I'm sorry, something about eating while on the wreck of the Titanic just freaks me out to my core. <sighs> There's an interview with one of the model makers who worked on the wreck model. He says that Cameron came into the workshop one day, looked at the model they were building on, walked over, and ripped off a piece of railing on the wreck. And one of the builders said, what are you doing? That's, that's in the picture we're building this from. And James Cameron, a little too casually, said, it's not there anymore. I knocked it off. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Oh, these dives all went down in the summer of 1995, and a year later, in August 1996, Cameron returned to the Atlantic on the research vessel The Keldish with the subs to film the movie's modern-day framing sequences with Bill Paxton and Old Rose, who's played by Gloria Stewart. In short, they basically just filmed fake versions of what James Cameron had done the previous summer. Same boat, same subs, much of the same crew starring as themselves, including the sub-pilot. But this was tricky because in addition to the American versus Russian cultural differences, there were now the scientist versus Hollywood filmmaker cultural differences. The researchers were used to launching and recovering subs once, maybe twice a day. Now they were doing it 20 to 30 times to get the shots that Cameron wanted. It got tense. This brings us to one of my favorite parts of this movie, Bill Paxton. And any movie. Any movie. You got Paxton. Find, you know, finding out Paxton's in your movie is like finding 20 bucks in your pocket. I like, <laughs> totally forgot that he was in this until I rewatched it recently. There's this great piece at uh, Paste by this writer I like who's on the, he's the host of uh, one of my favorite podcasts, The New Flesh, horror movies podcast, uh, a writer named Jesse Hassinger. He talks about Bill Paxton being sort of the ultimate James Cameron analog in this film because of oh. what you got at earlier about like... You know, he starts out the movie being jaded and thinking of it as a like, payday, and he's really just kind of obsessed with the technical specs of everything and sort of the very boots on the ground approach. And then by the end of it, he's been totally taken over by the human story and the the emotional elements of it. And, you know, Jesse writes so he's like, this is the Cameron analog, you know, someone who became obsessed with the technical details of this, but ultimately still wanted to create something that had all this human emotion to it. Uh, that's very true. Also, watching the movie recently, I noticed that there was a lot of uh, what I took to be romantic chemistry between Bill Paxton's character and Rose's granddaughter, played by Susie mm. Amos. I later learned that there was a whole subplot of uh, a budding romance between Bill Paxton's character and the Susie Amos character. Uh, James Cameron later married Susie Amos. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yeah, ultimate James Cameron analog. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Bill Paxton, as we said earlier, is the treasure hunter. Brock Lovett, that's a terrible character name. It really is. Some uh, of these names are pretty bad, man. I, I mean, it's, they're like not quite soap character, but close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in the midst of his search for the diamond known as the Heart of the Ocean. Paxton himself didn't dive on Titanic for the shoot, but when James Cameron embarked on an expedition to obtain more detailed images of the wreck for his 2003 documentary Ghosts of the Abyss, he invited Paxton along for the ride. 
which means that Bill Paxson has been on Titanic and also saw JFK in Texas on the day he was assassinated in 1963. So Bill Paxton is basically Forrest Gump. <laughs> and he was in Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, who was Forrest Gump. Good Lord. That, I mean, I need like a beautiful mind style graph of Paxton. <laughs> Towards a unified theory yeah. of Paxton. Uh, Paxton and Cameron, as you mentioned earlier, go way back. One of his earliest roles was a minor one in The Terminator. Uh, he also appeared as the cowardly Private Hudson in Aliens and also in True Lies. So that's a, that's a pretty full, uh, almost coverall for your James Cameron bingo. Um, <laughs> his character is basically a modern day pirate in Titanic, and he's never been able to connect with the human side of the disaster at all. Like you said, all he's interested in is the treasure. In the beginning of the movie, they haul up the safe from Rose and Cal's room. You know, it's payday, boys. And then they open it on camera very recklessly for something that's been on the bottom of the ocean for nearly a hundred years. I just like chainsaw it open, if I recall, which hurt the conservator in me. And they open <laughs> it with great ceremony only to find that the diamond isn't there. Uh, one of the few glaring impossibilities in this movie, and there are only a few, is that there are actually strict laws against taking items from inside the wreck, which is essentially protected as a grave. Uh, the only artifacts that have been brought to the surface are from the debris field outside of the wreck, which is basically all the stuff that spilled out of the ship when it broke in two on the surface. Uh, as an interesting aside, Cameron has talked about seeing a perfectly square, safe size object on his sonar during every dive, but he never had time to investigate it. So, hmm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when they open the safe in the movie and there's nothing in it, Brock's colleague, the hirsute Louis Bodine, says, you know, boss, the same thing happened to Geraldo and his career never recovered. They're talking about TV journalist Geraldo Rivera, a friend of John Lennon's, weirdly, who hosted a live two-hour special in 1986 called The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults, where he opened a large vault that was supposed to contain great treasures or secrets or maybe even dead bodies belonging to the famous gangster. 30 million people tuned in. It was the biggest audience for a syndicated TV special ever at the time. But when they opened the vault live on air, it was basically empty. The only things they found inside were dirt and several empty bottles, <laughs> including one that Rivera claimed was for moonshine bathtub gin. And after a few minutes, he spent... <laughs> Desperately just, trying to make it happen. Yeah, he's just poking around. It's, it's on YouTube. You should watch it. A visibly horrified and disappointed Geraldo gave up, saying, well, I guess we struck out and apologized to viewers. And like Louis Bodine said, his career truly never recovered. And the term Al Capone's vault became a euphemism in the industry for basically, you know, an overhyped event that turns out to be sort of a nothing burger. Uh, let's talk about Louis Bodine for a second. He's one of my favorite characters in this movie. The long-haired, straight-talking, eccentric member of the treasure hunting crew. He's playing... Sorry to describe you. <laughs> Not very straight-talking, am I? <laughs> Securitist talking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's played by James Cameron's friend, Louis Abernathy, who's not really an actor. But James Cameron imagined Louis when he wrote the role. And after failing to find anyone who could deliver the lines in his inimitable way, he just asked him straight out. And Louis supposedly said, if you want to mess up your movie by casting me, buddy, all right. <laughs> Apparently he ghost wrote a bunch of stuff, at least according to his LinkedIn. He wrote some of this stuff with Cameron. Oh, we should have reached out so. to him and tried to get like, a couple quotes from him. That would have been a fun, oh man, I screwed up. Uh, it's funny. <laughs> I always get his character confused with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Twister, which is also mm. starring Bill Paxton. You know, kind of larger, gruff, slightly hippie-ish. Oh, shit. He wrote the movie I was just talking about, Deep Star Six. Really? Apparently. Wow. It's according to his LinkedIn. So, you know, he's... I love that he has a LinkedIn. 
That really means he's not a real actor. IMDb page, eh. LinkedIn, sure, yeah. Uh, Lewis provides a very crucial bit of exposition when he shows the computer animation of the Titanic sinking to old Rose. And it's a great way of showing people who aren't familiar with the ship sinking what actually happened on the night and kind of getting them up to speed on what they're about to see later on. It kind of adds to the tension because you know, like, oh, at a certain point, this thing's going to break. It kind of is a real cheeky way of, uh, you know, as James Cameron himself knows, just giving people the end of the movie at the very beginning. Although, if you're watching Titanic, chances are you know roughly how the movie ends. But now we have to talk about the true queen of the production, at least of the modern segments, Gloria Stewart, who plays 100-year-old Rose. James Cameron describes her in the script as having, quote, eyes just as bright and alive as those of a young girl. At the time of the production, there were only eight known Titanic survivors, and most of those were either too young to have memories of what happened or were too affected by age to be able to discuss it coherently. But 86-year-old Gloria Stewart was the only person involved with the Titanic production who was actually alive when the Titanic sank. She was not quite two years old at the time. She'd acted in a few Shirley Temple movies and as what she described as, quote, the highly visible woman opposite Claude Rains in The Invisible Man. <laughs> The press around the Titanic movie was that James Cameron had gotten the silver screen era actress out of retirement for this epic, but that's not quite accurate. She'd had some smaller roles and stuff like 1986's Wildcats with Goldie Hawn. Uh, James Cameron originally approached Faye Ray from the original King Kong movies, but she supposedly turned down the role in Titanic, saying, not inaccurately, I think to have done this film would have been a torturous experience altogether. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Gloria Stewart had to undergo hours of makeup to become Old Rose. She later said, It wasn't a happy moment, I must say, to see every wrinkle and liver spot I thought I didn't have multiplied several times. Uh, Gloria Stewart seems super cool. She insisted on meeting with Kate Winslet before shooting began to study her movements and gestures because, as she generously noted, I'm playing her, she's not playing me. So we killed a bottle of champagne and we talked and talked. And Gloria was 100 when she died in 2010, just like her character in Titanic, uh, at least, I think. Uh, James Cameron has always been coy about the precise meaning of the ending of the film. Did she die or did she just have a dream that she was going back to the Titanic? Uh, according to Gloria Stewart's grandson, James Cameron refused to tell her the meaning. When they shot the scene of her in bed at the end of the movie, Cameron simply said, Just lie still, Gloria. You don't need to know. <laughs> Another cute aside, Rose brings all of her photos with her on board the Keldish. One of them shows her on a horse with Santa Monica Pier in the background. And I think that's cute because at the beginning of the movie, shortly after Jack and Rose met, Jack promises Rose that he'll take her to the Santa Monica Pier where they'll go on a roller coaster and ride horses on the beach. Ignoring the fact that there weren't actually roller coasters there in 1912, which is one of the few anachronisms in this movie, it's a cute way of showing that she did indeed do all the things that Jack promised her she would. I like that. Hmm. Speaking of Old Rose not traveling light, I think she's called Old Rose in the script. I know James Cameron always refers to her as that. I always feel bad calling her Old Rose, but I think that's her, her official name. Uh, one of the things that she brings onto the research vessel is her dog, a little Pomeranian. Pomeranians were two of only three dogs known to have survived the Titanic disaster. The other was a Pekingese. They escaped when passengers brought them onto the lifeboats. They were small enough to sit on laps, and there's also a possibility that they were just smuggled aboard in coats and purses. Uh, can you imagine being in a freezing lifeboat, witnessing the death of 1,500 people with a high-strung little, like, rat dog nipping at your feet? 
Well, Pekingese were bred as like uh, Chinese nobility dogs to Don't like care. as for <laughs> no, but for warmth, like oh. because you would just they would literally just put them in their sleeves so that they could to keep warm. So oh, if okay. nothing else, it was another source of body heat, and then you could eat it. <laughs> I think you know what I think that the Pekingese <laughs> on the that survived the Titanic was named Sun Yat Sen. <laughs> I'm not I'm serious. I think so. Oh, uh, it's sad that I knew that off the top of my head. <laughs> you are correct. Jesus Christ. I, this is... The dog was allowed to stay in her cabin as stewards considered it too pretty to put among the bigger dogs in kennels. <laughs> too pretty for prison. Do you know what the other dogs on the Titanic were? Uh, I believe there is a King Charles Spaniel, a few yep. Airedales, a Fox yep. Terrier. Yep. I know there was a French Bulldog and a yep. Great Dane. I don't see the Great Dane. A Chow Chow named Chow Chow. Um, Pomeranian named Lady Fru Fru. That was the aforementioned too pretty toy. And uh, Rigel. You know Rigel? about Rigel? I don't know the about New- Rigel. A Newfoundland purported to have been on the ship who saved survivors. Oh, that's a myth. Yeah, yeah. it's apocryphal. Yeah. Yeah, all these, uh, there was a kennel on board the ship. I think it was behind the fourth funnel, and they were all mm-hmm. walked once a day by a steward. They had a good life until. They didn't. Um, <laughs> there was a plan to have a mini dog show in first class, but the ship sank, I think, the day before it was going to take place. During the sinking, a passenger freed the dogs from their kennels, uh, and a survivor later recalled seeing a French bulldog swimming in the ocean, which I find weird because I was under the impression that French bulldogs couldn't swim because of their freakish compact body frames. Well, they're fat, right? So they got they can float a little. Yeah, right? well, maybe. Yeah. That would be my bet. God, that's depressing. Yeah. Uh, James Cameron filmed the scene that depicts the James Cameron being. drowned many dogs <laughs> to make this movie. Uh, Boy, he filmed the scene where the animals are dramatically freed, but it was left on the cutting room floor. Probably, as you said, because it was just too upsetting to consider the whole dead dog angle. Uh, there are numerous myths about these animals. One is that they were freed by John Jacob Astor, the richest passenger on board. Uh, Rose points John Jacob Astor out during the dinner party scene when he's with his young wife, uh, who's pregnant, and it caused quite the scandal, I believe. You know, her little mm-hmm. wifey there is in a delicate condition. Quite the scandal. I think I have that right. Uh, John Jacob Astor is also the man who supposedly pioneered the concept of velvet ropes at his hotel, the Waldorf Astoria in New York. You know that? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. Supposedly, Astor didn't want to die alone, and he wanted to be with his Airedale when the end came, which is sad. So that's the story of him freeing all the animals. There's also a story of a woman in first class named Anne Eliza Isham, I think it's how you say her name, who wouldn't leave the Titanic without her beloved Great Dane, so she stayed behind and died. Supposedly, a passenger on a ship passing through the wreck site a few days later saw a woman's body floating in the ocean holding onto the body of a large dog. However, this might be apocryphal. There's no hard evidence for this story, and apparently when you do a little digging, you learn that this woman didn't even have a dog. There are (gasps) so many tall tales when it comes to the Titanic. In addition... To old Rose's dog, her goldfish, and an assortment of other crap, Rose brings her granddaughter Lizzie, who is played by the actress Susie Amos. 
I said earlier, watching this movie a few years ago, I was struck by the obvious sexual tension between her and Bill Paxton's character. Turns out I was right. There's a long lost ending of the Titanic movie that we'll talk about in the next episode, which focuses on their budding romantic relationship. But it's also interesting to me because actress Susie Amos went on to marry James Cameron. So the woman he cast to be the love interest for the character that, let's face it, is basically him, later wound up to be his wife a few years after the movie was made. I forgot he also was married to the woman uh, who wrote Terminator Aliens and the Abyss with him, Galen Hurd. They were married? Mm-hmm. I thought it was Catherine Bigelow. It was a woman who was like, I don't know her name. I think she was like a waitress and when he was working as a trucker in his 20s. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, his his track record is Sharon Williams, divorced in 84, Galen Hurd, married in 85, divorced 89, Catherine Bigelow, married in 89, divorced 91. He just serially left women for the women he would then marry and then leave for another woman. Oh, that was his fifth marriage then. But hey, his fifth marriage is by far his longest. They've been together since 2000 and remain so to this day. So good for them. Holly weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Do you want to get to the real, the real weirdest part of the story? My personal favorite story from the Titanic filming. Well, let me ask you, do you want to go to a real party? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of you possibly surface level familiar with Titanic Apocrypha may know the story that someone dosed clam chowder on the set with PCP (laughs) or angel dust, Sherman Helmsley wet. I'm trying to think of what else he calls it in that Chappelle show skit. Um, (laughs) That's angel dust, Jake. I didn't know you liked to get wet, Jake. <laughs> training day, man. I love that. We should just do... We, should, we gotta do training day. Yeah, Come we on. should. We should. Yeah. Um, James Cameron was... Uh, made made some enemies. Let's put it that way. Um, one of them, though it's never been revealed who, decided to take revenge on Cameron and the rest of the production by spiking the craft services chowder, clam chowder. Was it New England or... Was that the red the, of the There's white? a question. I, I think it's white, but it's unsure whether or not it was lobster, clam, or mussel chowder. There's been some mm. debate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, they spiked it with PCP. <laughs> um, upwards of 50 people, including James Cameron, were hospitalized with uh, PCP hallucinations. Um, they were just about to wrap filming in Halifax, the last day of filming in Halifax, just after midnight on August 9th. 1996. Can you play some penny whistles in the background? What to set this? Play the pipe the James Horner score in so we can really set the mood here. It's been 25 years (laughs) and I still remember (laughs) getting super high. Uh, They were about to head to Baja, uh, Mexico, to the giant Titanic set that they'd built on the water. Uh, Cast and crew broke for lunch, even though it was after midnight, James Cameron time. Uh, (laughs) Lunch is after midnight on James Cameron's shoot. Yep. And uh, people went for the chowder, which had uh, supposedly very good. Yeah. Good chowder. So, so much so that people were going back for second bowls and eating a lot more than usual, which was not helpful. And that's when things yeah. took a turn. Uh, people began to feel confused. Uh, the, the, the general atmosphere of Cameron-esque productivity broke down. A stand-in suddenly fainted. Uh, an onset translator summed up the experience pretty well. I feel toxic and beside myself. Which, uh, welcome to the party, pal. Uh, Bill Paxton told Entertainment Weekly soon afterwards, one minute I felt okay, the next minute I felt so goddamn anxious I wanted to breathe in a paper bag. Is PCP just like being me? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what that does to you? Just 
Makes you feel disassociated and anxious. That sucks. Uh, the Steadicam operator started seeing colors and fog while others saw streaks. Okay, I don't have that. Uh, James Cameron was one of those affected. He said he was suddenly feeling suddenly and distinctly woozy. Fearing that this was the result of bad seafood or a paralytic shellfish neurotoxin, in his words, because nothing is normal with James Cameron. It's never food poisoning or something. He suddenly thinks he's been hit with fugu fish poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) That he probably attempted to butcher himself. He's like, no, no, I got this. That's what actually happened. James Cameron was trying to serve everyone blowfish and poisoned <laughs> them because he had tried to do the famously difficult toxin removal operation himself. Went off and forced himself to vomit uh, because he's Gus from Breaking Bad, I guess. <laughs> Suddenly couldn't find his way out of the set that he'd been working on for weeks. His buddy Louis Abernathy, the aforementioned actor-writer, later said, I was just shocked at the way he looked. One eye was completely red, like the Terminator eye. A pupil, no iris, beat red. The other eye looked like he'd been sniffing glue since he was four. When Cameron returned to the set, he discovered that everyone had gone, and it was eerily empty, like an episode of The Twilight Zone. The affected crew were taken, moaning, crying, and wailing, to a nearby hospital, where one doctor quickly determined, as he later told reporters, these people were stoned. Much of this comes from this fantastic Cracked article written by J.M. McNabb, which is this oral history of just this specific moment on set. Uh, Everyone was so friggin' high that they started racing wheelchairs down the hallway and performed a spirited conga line led by legendary cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, Zoe's dad. Uh, As documented in the Cameron biography The Futurist, the director used his walkie-talkie to radio his assistant director while he was standing directly in front of him. She then left at Cameron and stabbed him in the face with a pen before being dragged away by hospital staff, all while Cameron sat, quote, bleeding and laughing. <laughs> it's like a James or uh, David Lynch movie. <laughs> uh, Bill Paxton, understandably freaked out by the bedlam, quietly ducked out of the ER with a teamster and went back to the set where he drank an entire case of beer, which he said <laughs> later seemed to help. Quote. Mania at the ho- yeah quote the mania at the hospital eventually died down and devolved into a game of hacky sack as the collective high mellowed. <laughs> Thankfully, no one suffered any long term ill effects, and mercifully, eighty six year old Gloria Stewart didn't have any of the chowder. Uh, <laughs> she later she was later found chewing James Cameron's <laughs> face off. Oh man. <laughs> The next day, the police were called in and they tested samples of the leftover chowder, determining indeed that it had been laced with PCP. The guilty party was never apprehended. If you or a friend know the identity (laughs) of the person who dosed the Titanic chowder on PCP, get in touch with the Too Much Information podcast. We'll Venmo you five bucks. (laughs) Case was investigated for two and a half years with the Halifax Police Department executing a warrant for Department of Health Records, getting a list of everyone who had worked on the set. But ultimately, the case was closed in 1999 due to a lack of suspects long after the movie had been released. But there are theories. Some believe it was a prank by locals who wanted to have a party on the last night of Hollywood in Halifax. The CEO of the local catering company who provided the chowder claimed that it was the Hollywood crowd bringing in the psychedelic (laughs) Speaking to Entertainment Weekly, he added, I don't think it was purposely done to hurt somebody. It was done like a party thing that got carried away. Canada. Uh, Still, James Cameron reportedly flipped out on one of the servers early in the shoot when he was given a hot cup of soup, which he abruptly tossed aside, screaming, don't you ever serve me boiling soup again. So 
pretty strong finger pointed at that guy. <laughs> uh, Bill Paxton, meanwhile, believed it was an inside job, as does Cameron, who says he has a good idea who did it, even though he can't prove it. He later said, we had fired a crew member the day before because they were creating trouble with the caterers. So we believe the poisoning was this idiot's plan to get back at the caterers, whom, of course, we promptly fired the next day. So it worked. And it's a delightful after image to this entire thing. Production had t-shirts made depicting the Titanic sinking in a big bowl of chowder. <sighs> uh, I didn't imagine James Cameron as, as a drug guy, but uh, in an oral history of Terminator 2 for The Ringer, he admitted that he was high on ecstasy when he conceived of the plot of Terminator 2. He said, I was sitting there once high on E writing notes for Terminator and I was struck by Sting's song, I Hope the Russians Love Their Children Too. And I thought, you know what? The idea of nuclear war is just so antithetical to life itself. That's where the kid came from. What Sting song is that? I think Russians. Yeah. <laughs> By the Sting. Oh my God. This is thick. Oh, it's from the Dream of the Blue Turtles. Yep. The lyrics are, on either side of the political fence, we share the same biology, regardless of ideology. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. Great, tremendous work there from Gordon Sumner. I just want to imagine that James Cameron is on E listening to Sting. Dream of the Blue Turtles? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fundamental image. Time to take a one ecstasy pill, do punch-up notes on the Terminator, and listen to Dream of the Blue Turtles. <laughs> My favorite pastime. Wait, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. I just love the fact that... This wasn't even a new Sting album. Wait, was it was it Terminator One or Two? Uh it says writing notes for oh, Terminator. Terminator Two. Okay, yeah. so that wasn't even a new Sting album. He just put on his favorite Sting album. Aww. This is 1985, and he wrote Terminator Aww. Two in '91. So he was just like, "What can I listen to?" Uh, really takes Sting. me back to my time living in the truck and directing Piranha for Roger Corman. <laughs> uh, Phil Collins? No, uh, I don't know. No. Tom Rats? Mm, I don't know. Mm. Sting? Oh, oh, yeah. Dream of the Blue Turtles? Yeah, oh, yeah. Hits. I'm imagining the whole American Psycho speech. <laughs> Have you heard of Dream of the Blue Turtles? Do you like Dream of the Blue Turtles? He's doing the whole speech from from American Psycho to Linda Hamilton, but it's about Sting's Dream of the Blue Turtles. Ah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. 
And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Well, chronologically, this is where we should segue into the gargantuan, sinkable Titanic set that James Cameron built. But we haven't talked about the principles of this film, who naturally took a backseat to Bill Paxton. (laughs) As they must always. First up, Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio, your two photogenic young leads. So we have to talk about fantasy casting for Rose First, who James Cameron described as an Audrey Hepburn type. Cameron has refused to play the fantasy casting bit famously. Uh, He doesn't want to talk about people who were also in consideration for his leads. Uh, Once saying, I will neither confirm or deny. I don't think that's cool to talk about actors that either chose not to do it or were unavailable or stupidly decided there wasn't enough meat on the bone of the character or whatever it was. He just cannot. He just always has to get his shot to the body in. I love it. (laughs) But the rumor mill continues to churn with or without Cameron's approval. And so we have pretty good authority that those once considered for the part of Rose were Gwyneth Paltrow, Nicole Kidman, Madonna, Mm. Jodie Foster, Mm. Cameron Diaz, Mm. and Sharon Stone. Who'd you like in there, Jordan? Um, Nicole Kidman. It has to be Gwyneth Paltrow for me. Uh, She's already, she's, she's Hollywood royalty. She's haughty. The rest of them are too, like, normal. Claire Danes has said that there was strong interest in her to take the part of Rose, especially considering that she was 17 and had just filmed the actual Romeo and Juliet as opposed to Romeo and Juliet on a boat uh, with Leo in Mexico. But she said she was not ready for the kind of attention that a movie like that would bring. I was really clear about it. I wasn't conflicted. I was feeling eager to have a different creative experiences, and that felt like a repeat, so it was going to propel me towards something that I knew I didn't have the resources to cope with. So, no regrets on her part. Kate Winslet herself has said that contemporaries like Uma Thurman and Winona Ryder were more likely candidates. But Winslet was taken with the script immediately, and she wasn't going to take no for an answer. She told Rolling Stone in 1998, I closed the script, wept floods of tears, and said, right, I've absolutely got to be a part of this. No two ways about it. She took a very proactive approach, obtaining Jim Cameron's personal cell number and calling him while he was driving. And she later recalled... I think he pulled over and I said, I just have to do this and you are really mad if you don't cast me. There are all kinds of stories of the lengths that she went. She sent him a barrage of daily notes from England, which led him to invite her to Hollywood to audition. 
She supposedly sent him a single rose afterwards with a card that read, From your rose, although she later denied that she'd done such a thing. But Cameron was not convinced and kept auditioning other people, which led her to call him fuming, You don't understand. I am Rose. I don't know why you're even seeing anyone else. It's like when Sean Young broke into uh, Tim Burton's office or whatever to uh, in Catwoman costume. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, Cameron was nervous partially because this was her Winslet's first American film and about 10 times bigger than anything else she'd been in. Uh, he did want relative newcomers so that the audience wouldn't carry the preconceived notions of someone like a Jodie Foster or a Sharon Stone into the characters. Winslet seemed a little inexperienced to carry what would become a $200 million film. She'd done a lot of historical movies and was known, according to Cameron, as Corset Kate. <laughs> As Kate later herself said, Jim took a risk in casting me. She learned that she'd got the part while she was filming Hamlet with Kenneth Branagh, apparently during a fitting for the straight jacket for her breakdown scene as Ophelia, which fitting preparation for shooting a movie with James Cameron. She was reportedly paid slightly less than a million dollars for her part in Titanic and received an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for the part. But apparently she has a hard time watching it these days because, as she says, my American accent is appalling. I've learned so much more, not just about myself, but about the job that I do in the world of film. I look at myself in Titanic and wish I could bring all this knowledge that I now have into that. And now it's over to Leonardo DiCaprio, who I'm sorry to say was so much less charming than Kate Winslet throughout the casting process. Well, this is the pussy posse days, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you didn't mention that in here once. I didn't. No, I did not. <laughs> uh, in fact, Leo was sort of a brat, which I'm sure isn't the most shocking thing in the world to learn. There were many actors up for consideration for the part. Kate Winslet actually said on an episode of Colbert that she auditioned with Matthew McConaughey, which is bizarre. He was apparently the top choice for the studio. And McConaughey later said in the most McConaughey way ever, I went and auditioned for that. I wanted that. I auditioned with Kate Winslet. Had a good audition. Walked away from there feeling pretty confident that I had it. I didn't get it. I never got offered that. I've also seen reports that he tried out for the role of Cal, who's Rose's jerky fiance, which I He's just, handsome enough. I just can't see that unless he was some sort of like new oil money baron or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That fits. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Christian Bale's ex-publicist has claimed that Christian also auditioned for the part of Jack Dawson, but didn't get the part. But I said ex-publicist, so maybe they were just being spiteful. I've also seen <laughs> theories that James Cameron turned down Christian Bale because he didn't want two Brits playing Americans as the leads in his $200 million extravaganza. Uh, also, potential people, Johnny Depp, Brad Pitt, Jared Leto, Billy Crudup, Stephen Dorff, and Macaulay Culkin apparently oh, man. were considered for the role. As was Chris O'Donnell, who was another studio favorite. You like any of those? Mm. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> Jared Leto, I mean, I'm not mad at. Ugh. God, can you imagine how unbearable, how much orders of magnitude worse he'd been if he'd been in one of the highest grossing films of all time? Mm. I think that's the only thing that keeps him humble is he keeps starring in a bunch of flops. <laughs> Uh, Tom Cruise apparently expressed an interest in playing Jack Dawson. Of course. His asking price was way too high and he was never seriously considered. We would have gotten cold fusion from the singularity <laughs> of Cruise and Cameron's egos colliding on this set. Are you kidding me? It would have been like a new galaxy being born. There's also audition footage out there with Jeremy Sisto from Clueless in the Jack role, which is truly weird to watch. It's the scene where Jack is showing Rose his sketchbook. And 
for some reason, watching it just offends me to my core. It's like really painful to watch. He, he plays it completely differently. There's the line where Rose sees a woman, a one-legged prostitute, according to the script, uh, multiple times in the sketchbook, and she playfully accuses Jack of having an affair with her. And in the movie, Leo dismisses it with a laugh and says, oh, just, just with her hands. She's got cool hands. Uh, Jeremy Sisto gets almost melancholic and very pensively says, just with her hands. <laughs> It's like it's all, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. It's unbearable. Um, Jeremy Sisto would go on to play Jesus <laughs> in the titular film Jesus <laughs> with uh, <laughs> Gary Oldman as Pontius Pilate. Oh. I know nothing about this movie, but I just looked up his filmography. <laughs> we went from almost playing Jack to playing Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's uh, not great, but Jeremy Sisto was pretty graceful about not getting the part. He said, it was exciting to be a part of the process. Anything James Cameron does has this huge scope to it. He's trying to push the limits on things. So I was just insanely inspired by it and a little heartbroken when the role didn't come my way. Also, speaking of Clueless, Paul Rudd was also considered, which mm. was a big thrill for him because his dad's apparently a big Titanic nerd. And supposedly during his audition, he rattled off all sorts of Titanic facts, which I can see as being a reason why he didn't get the gig with James Cameron just being like, excuse me, we only have room for one Titanic expert here. Sorry. Oh, this would have been right as he was coming off of uh, Romeo and Juliet. Paul Rudd? Yeah. No. He was Paris. I'm talking about. The sixth Michael Myers movie, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Paul Rudd was in <laughs> Halloween 6? Jordan, please. <laughs> please, you're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> uh, in the end, James Cameron insisted on Leonardo DiCaprio. Even Kate Winslet was set on it. After she screen tested with Leo, she was so impressed that she told James Cameron, he's great, even if you don't pick me, pick him. Even if, though if you don't pick me, I'll send a bomb to your house. Uh, <laughs> the problem was that Leo didn't seem to give a damn about this movie. I mean, let's face it. James Cameron's movies have never been known for their acting. Uh, insert Chris Rocks. That's just like going to Hooters for the wings line here. <laughs> um, by this point, Leonardo DiCaprio had already gotten the Best Supporting Actor nomination for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, making him the seventh youngest person ever to do so at age 19. I mean, his career was launched when he read with Robert De Niro at an audition, and De Niro handpicked him to play the lead in this boy's life. So when you're impressing Robert De Niro, you don't necessarily want to do popcorn movies. Plus, the character of Jack Dawson didn't interest Leo at all. He was just so boring, so mainstream, so traditional. Leo later told the LA Times, I just wasn't used to playing an open-hearted, free-spirited guy. I've played more tortured roles in the past. It was difficult to be someone closer to me than anyone else. And he just appeared in Romeo and Juliet, playing like the most angsty character in literature. And, you know, his ability to get young people to sit through two hours of Shakespeare was probably part of the appeal for James Cameron, who, you know, probably worried about getting teens into the theaters for what was essentially a period piece. Paul Rudd, who was also in Romeo and Juliet as Paris, got wind that Leo was auditioning for Titanic, and he says that he encouraged him to take the role. Rudd tells the story, it was my last day of filming on Romeo and Juliet, and we all went out to a bar afterwards, a bunch of guys working on the movie. So we were in different cars, and I was riding to the place with Leo, and he said, I just got offered this movie, and it's a big movie. He'd done indie films up to that point, and he said, it's a studio movie, it's Titanic. And I said, that's incredible. I knew a lot about the Titanic, because my dad just talks about it all the time. And he declines to mention that he auditioned in this anecdote. So that's interesting. And Leo and I had a conversation about it. And he was like, oh, I don't know what I'll do. And I remember saying, you should do it. So 
So Leo went in for a meeting, which went well, but he still wasn't sold on the idea, leading the ever-tenacious Kate Winslet to seek him out when they were both attending the Cannes Film Festival, literally tracking him down to his hotel room. Just A-plus for effort here. I mean, the only person who really gives James Cameron a run for his money in the tenacity <laughs> department here. Seriously. Kate Winslet. Yeah. She later told Rolling Stone, I was thinking, I'm going to persuade him to do this because I'm not doing this without him. And that's all there is to it. I will have him. <laughs> I will have him. Uh, yes. he, he will be mine. Yeah. <laughs> so Leo was persuaded to come back a short time later, thinking it was just for, you know, a get-to-know-you meeting with Kate Winslet. But James Cameron expected him to read for the part and do a screen test. And clearly with his Gilbert Grape Oscar buzz and Romeo and Juliet blockbuster magic dust, Leo felt that he was above this and told Cameron, oh, I don't, I don't read. So Cameron just <laughs> shook his hand and said, well, thanks for coming by. <laughs> Cameron tells the story in a GQ interview early this year. He said, Leo said, wait, 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 if I don't read, I don't get the part just like that. And I said, oh yeah, come on. This is a giant movie. It's going to take two years of my life. And you'll be doing five other things while I'm doing post-production. So I'm not going to f*** it up by making the wrong decision in casting. So you're going to read or you're not going to get the part. So Leo sucked it up and did the screen test. <laughs> I will break you, little yeah. man. <laughs> Cameron said, every ounce of his entire being was entirely negative right up until I said action. And then he turned into Jack. And Kate just lit up. And they went into this whole thing and he played the scene. Dark clouds had opened up, a ray of sun came down, and lit up Jack. I'm like, all right, all right, he's the guy. So Leo accepted the role for a reported $2.5 million, which, if my math is correct, is more than double what Kate Winslet got because Hollywood is a cesspool. But that didn't make him any less of a pill on the set. Leo, who just turned 21 at the time, second-guessed the script, the character, and Cameron at pretty much every turn, ultimately leading James Cameron to corner him one day and say, hey man, why'd you take the part? You don't seem to like anything about it. <laughs> to his credit, Cameron knew exactly what was eating him. The part was too perfect, too easy. Leo wanted James Cameron to give Jack a limp or a tick or some kind of character flaw, and Cameron later observed, his character doesn't go through torment, and Leo previously and subsequently in his career was always looking for that dark cloud. It became my job to convince him that it was a challenge to do what Gregory Peck and Jimmy Stewart did in previous generations, which is to stand there and be strong and hold the audience's eye without seeming to do very much. It was only when I convinced him that that was actually a harder thing to do that he got excited. They had what Cameron described as, quote, a cathartic moment when we both just sat in my trailer and talked for a couple hours, and we hugged at the end and went back to work. Leo may have wanted to play a tortured character, but he soon discovered that he get all the torturing he desired on the set of this movie. 14-hour days with 70 to 90-hour work weeks were rough, though, as we'll discuss, Kate Winslet had an even tougher job, but Leo handled it far worse. While filming the first-class dinner party scene in which his character coins the phrase make it count to a bunch of upper-class snobs, Leo reportedly leaned over to Kathy Bates, his co-star, pointed at the cutlery that her character had just shown him how to use, and asked, which one of these do I use to lobotomize myself? <laughs> Funny, considering he would later play a character who ends his film, spoiler alert, by getting a lobotomy in Shutter Island. Oh, yeah. Mm. Huh. A 1998 Vanity Fair article depicts him as not especially chipper while on the giant Titanic set in Mexico. <laughs> to quote this article, DiCaprio was sick of the brown land, the mariachi merriment, and Cameron's big tub. So one day he, 
<laughs> so wait, it gets even better. So one day he ambled over to the set, took a good look at the four sound stages, the 17 million gallon water tank, the smokestacks rising majestically against the sky, the hordes of extras running around in period clothes, and thought, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's even funnier again if you pipe in the James Horner score. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, this as a Titanic obsessive, this offends me to my core. I mean, you're walking around the full-scale replica of the Titanic, but I mean, he's he's rich, uh, on young, on, not yeah, a nerd. Yeah, on top of the proverbial world, and women throwing themselves at his feet. Like, I get it. I mean, it doesn't make him any less of a, shit, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> he apparently blew off steam by going to a local club near the set called the Rock and Roll Taco. Is that related to the Bottom Storm? <laughs> where he and his crew were thrown out for dancing inappropriately. Tremendous. Uh, but in his defense, he had a scary moment on the set involving his beloved pet lizard, Blizzard. <laughs> he, he apparently would bring this lizard onto the set, which is uh, questionable behavior on the best of occasions, but especially when the set in question is a miniature city recreating one of the most famous maritime disasters in history. The pet lizard was accidentally run down by a truck during filming. Imagine being that driver. How screwed would you be? How quickly <laughs> do you think Cameron fired him? Uh, but thankfully, Blizzard the Lizard was not killed, and Leo was able to nurse him back to health. Trying to find out what kind of lizard it was. <laughs> I think there's like fan pictures of him from like Tiger Beat or 17 or something. Yeah, yeah. There with, are. With the lizard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another favorite activity to blow off steam, although this is a bit more literal, was to fart into his jacket and then sweep it over Kate Winslet's face. Charming. That's disgusting. I can't uh, that. A bearded dragon. Oh, I, I thought the, I thought that was the term for... When you fart in a jacket and spit over someone's head. Oh, yeah, they call it a bearded dragon. I don't know, it's like, oh, that was the Cleveland steamer, but I guess it's the bearded <laughs> dragon. Okay. Uh, as James can. Friend of the pod, Cleveland Steamer. <laughs> Will I keep that in? I don't know. Uh, as James Cameron quite rightly said to Rolling Stone in 1998, if anybody else in the world did that, they'd get slapped, and the other person would walk away and not talk to them for a week. With Leo, Kate would just crack up. Actor Billy Zane, who played Cal, said in the same interview with Rolling Stone, grossing out Kate was purely Leo's job. He was really good at it. Obviously, they were very chummy on the set, striking up a brotherly-sisterly relationship. Um, actually, I immediately regret that analogy, given this next anecdote. Uh, apparently, <laughs> Kate and Leo passed the time between takes swapping sex tips. Uh, Kate said in her Rolling Stone profile that they would curl up under a blanket in his trailer and discuss, quote, very, very personal things, asking each other for advice. Not necessarily comparing notes, but sort of, no, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. He's very good at that. I have to say, a lot of those sexual tips he's given me have worked, and I know it's vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's something. That's something in addition to their salary. <laughs> um, their relationship is very cute, though. When the production spent weeks shooting Kate in these really dangerous water scenes, Leo always kept an eye on her and was really quick to swoop in and help if anything had gone awry. Kate later said, when we did all the underwater footage at the end, Leo was a certified scuba diver at that point, and I was not, and he really did look after me. He was totally brilliant. He wouldn't leave my side. And apparently they're still close and even quote Titanic lines back and forth to one another in their text threads, which I find adorable. <laughs> of course you do. But despite this, 
Leo was not exactly thrilled with his experience making this movie, notably skipping the Oscars ceremony, even though Titanic was up for historic 14 nominations. He told Vanity Fair in the lead up to the film's release in 1998, after the whole experience, I know it's not my cup of tea. All respect to Jim and all the actors who do that type of thing. Mm. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he did seem to warm to it in later years. In 2012, to honor the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking, James Cameron had the movie reformatted into 3D, which is a craze that he basically jump-started with Avatar, uh, and invited Leo over to watch some of it. And Cameron said, We had a good reminiscence, and of course, he was guffawing at what a kid he was in the movie. I think he hadn't seen it in a while, and seeing it on a big screen, he was literally just snorting into his hands at one point. So that's the image I choose to keep in my heart of Leo and his relationship to Titanic. Just <laughs> older, wiser, sitting next to James Cameron with a begrudging acceptance, guffawing into his hands. <laughs> uh, speaking of Leonardo DiCaprio, there is a fascinating, if slightly tragic, profile uh, of his body double in the film. Uh, Vanity Fair did this in 2016. Pieces called Being Leo. For those of you who don't know, body doubles are just essentially stand-ins while production is setting up shots and sort of fine-tuning camera movements and everything. They just stand in the actor's places so you don't have highly paid and very delicate actors just, uh, you know, grinding their knees away, standing in place on sets. If there's a shot in the film where you see Jack but not his face, it is more than likely a gentleman named Brett Baker who is actually three inches shorter and a few years older than Leo but had similar hair and a similar build. To quote the piece, these actors endure the boring parts of a shoot so that the big names don't have to. They're like stunt doubles, except that the stunt is to just kind of stand there, and the only danger is dying of crushing boredom. Uh, the article details Baker's non-relationship with Leo and Kate. Uh, he first met Kate on the famous Grand Staircase by the Bronze Cherub. They went weeks without being properly introduced before this poor guy was like, can we just, can I meet, can we, can you actually... Tell her my name. Uh, things with Leo weren't any tighter. Privately, I hoped Leo would invite me out for a beer with some of his friends. Again, Ron Howard narrator voice. He did not. Uh, the piece <laughs> hilariously and tragically describes Baker as the film's most low-tech special effect. Uh, but if you're interested in the sad world of Hollywood stand-ins, go ahead and check that out. But uh, it also has some good stories from the set. But it is sad because uh, he, this guy wasn't even credited um, and no one knows who he is. As he says in the piece, Baker said, to be honest, it's painful and humbling. If art is created and no one sees it, was it really creative? If a body double is done in a reverse shot in a forest and no one's around. Uh, the end of the article by writer Darren King said, Baker doesn't want to come across as bitter or jaded. He's never told the full story of his time on Titanic before, preferring to focus his energies on the future. He hasn't watched Titanic since the cast and crew premiere in L.A. in 1997, when what was meant to be a celebratory occasion broke his heart all over again. As he scanned the credits, he realized, with what can only be described as a sinking feeling, hey -oh, that's not in the piece, uh, that his name was nowhere to be found. So that is sad. But let's pour one out for body double Brett Baker here and thank him for this work on your beloved large boat. Brett Baker, you are now friend of the pod. <laughs> friend of the pod, Brett Baker. What's that guy up to? He's, he moved to porn. <laughs> Brett Baker, IMDb. He later played Jesus. Uh, no, <laughs> there's like 17 Brett Bakers. I mean, apparently if he's not credited, 
in Titanic. He doesn't have uh, an IMDb credit for it, so he's kind of impossible to track down. Yeah, there. <laughs> oh no. Oh well, according to his own IMDb bio, which he wrote. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. He's one of five performers in the U.S. to receive an international acting scholarship to study at the Royal National Theater in the Old Vic under the patronage of Anthony Hopkins. Oh. Did he have to do it all with his back of his head facing the audience? <laughs> he He's still working, okay? You know, Brett Baker's doing okay. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, uh, and the rest. <laughs> Billy Zane. You know who was supposed to be great on the set? Billy Zane. Yeah. Another Canadian reference name for James Cameron. Uh, the name Calden Hockley uh, derives from the two small towns near Ontario where James Cameron's aunt and uncle live rob Lowe, rupert everett peter green not the fleetwood mac guitarist and <laughs> pierce brosnan wait peter green the bad guy in the mask i think so the weasley guy i think so god that would have been chilling he would have yeah. stopped being just a handsome jerk and like an outright sociopath uh pierce brosnan all reportedly in the running to play cal as again was matthew mcconaughey you said he turned it down he was sad about not getting jack so he turned down the role out maybe spite. maybe that was it i've, I've seen multiple and James Cameron is not confirmed or denied, so tough to say. Who's to say? Bizarrely enough, James Cameron apparently wanted to cast Billy Zane because he was impressed with his performance in the 1996 superhero movie The Phantom, in which Zane is wearing a purple skin-tight bodysuit the entire time. I remember when that movie came out. That was during that weird vogue in the 90s when you were doing, like, they, would, they were resurrecting all these golden age superhero properties to try and cash in on the Batman stuff, like... When we got Alec Baldwin doing the shadow. Oh yeah. Uh anyway. Um Billy Zane wore a wig because he was bald. <laughs> you didn't really sell that that well. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Zane wore a wig. Because he was what bald. What do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, yeah, and and uh, from the wellspring of of Calden Hockley sprung Billy Zane's entire later career of just kind of being a dick. Um he quoted James Bond author Ian Fleming saying, this is a mink-lined cell. Do I wish I was playing more white hat hero roles? All the time. But I'm actually making that happen by developing my own material. So, stay tuned for that, folks. Uh, <laughs> I think that, that interview's from like five years ago. <laughs> Still waiting with bated breath for Billy Zane's I have nothing wrong with his Billy no, Zane. I, like I don't mean him. to him. wonderful in all the making of specials. For it's this. just the best. It's it's just my favorite line from Zoolander. You should listen to your friend Billy Zane. He's a cool <laughs> dude. He's trying to help you. Um, <laughs> Francis Fisher was actually cast as Rose's uh, mother, Ruth. But uh, we have to talk about Kathy Bates as the other mom character. This is the mom character for 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 Leo. For Leo, yes, the unsinkable Molly Brown. No one called her that. <laughs> she was known as Margaret or Maggie to her friends at the time. She didn't earn her nickname until after her death, apparently. Uh, why? Her friends called her Margaret. I don't know why they started calling her Molly after she died. No idea. Mm. Uh, Molly Brown was also credited with inventing or at least popularizing the buffet. <laughs> Friend of the pod. The buffet. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> How did they pin that? Whatever. I, I'm going to look that up I as you I, keep reading. I trust you. I trust you. That part was originally offered to Reba McIntyre. Mm, love Reba. Just love a brassy country lady. 
Uh, she was going to do it until shooting delays meant that she wasn't needed on the set until months later than initially planned, and unfortunately, she was on tour and had to back out. She talked about that on an episode of Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, during which she admitted she was bummed, but hastened to add, you've got to take care of your people. Mm. Love mm. Reba. So they turned to Kathy Bates. Fox apparently balked at her requested fee of 500 grand, so James Cameron shelled out 150 grand of his own money to get Kathy Bates in the film. Fox would pony up 2 million to send James Cameron on death drives down to the Titanic with a bunch of Russians, and they wouldn't give 150 grand to Kathy Bates. Oscar winning Kathy Bates. Ugh. I know. Disrespect. For the role of Captain Edward James Smith, famously on his final voyage before he intended to retire. Uh, <laughs> is that where this trope comes from? Just one more big, one more? No, it's got to be a trope since before that. Two more days to retirement. One last big score before I retire. One, one more, more large season. boat. One more large boat. One more season. <laughs> Cameron cast British character actor Bernard Hill. Bernard, I assume. Bernard uh, Hill, who would uh, later appear in the Lord of the Rings movie as King Theoden. Uh, but shockingly, Cameron initially approached Robert De Niro, which is hilarious. Just imagine him being all squinty and tight-lipped at the at the big wheel of a ship. I have a theory. I have a theory about this. Can I tell you my theory? Yeah, please, please. I think it was a ploy by James Cameron to try to get Leo, who thought that this movie didn't have any prestige, and just was like, "Hey, De Niro, oh. can you like just say that you're going out for this, and maybe I'll get this guy? Like, don't worry, I won't actually like." make you do this showed that's up in the theory. trades or whatever and yeah. that's where and leo was like "Ooh, suddenly a whiff of prestige interesting oh, i love that well, especially because de niro's reason for turning this down is so absurd that, uh yeah. a stomach ache yeah <laughs> a gastrointestinal infection to to quote the mirror but he, could, he, he ate too much at nobu <laughs> it's like i can't do your movie now i have a tummy ache james i can't do your movie sorry <laughs> This was around the same time that I was dressing up as Captain Smith. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. And it was also around this time that I was faking stomach ailments to get out of stuff that I didn't want to do so I could stay home and, uh, truth be told, read my Titanic books. Well, folks, it's time to wrap it up for today. I think this episode is probably the length of the full Titanic movie. Uh, I was going to say. Just part one. Yeah. Heigl, you still with us? <laughs> Whew. What do you think? <laughs> Does this, is this, I gotta ask, does this episode give you a begrudging admiration for James Cameron? I have nothing against James Cameron. Oh, I think okay. he's just a, I, I think he's just an asshole. And okay. I don't think, yeah. I don't think Walter he would, check rule. yeah, I don't think he would, I don't think he'd debate that. Um, right. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> All right. Well, we will pick back up with the story in part two of our TMI Titanic epic. You truly have not seen nothing yet when it comes to James Cameron's James Cameron-ness. You thought PCP was bad. Yeah, yeah. So please, join us for part two. I beg of you. <laughs> Tell your friends. They'll love it. Tell your enemies. They'll hate it. <laughs> this has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Rontog. We'll catch you next time for part two of Everything You Didn't Know About James Cameron's Titanic. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. 
For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.